or just joining us, uh, welcome and say goodbye to Isaiah. Uh, we've been in Isaiah for the past four months, and here is um, the last sermon that we will be giving in Isaiah before we move to the Gospels and the Gospel of John. It's fitting that the last sermon in Isaiah is about heaven, about the end. And uh, as you've seen through all of these 66 chapters, uh, much history of uh, the nation of You've seen them uh, be a, um, come under attack by foreign enemies. You've seen them go into exile. You've seen, seen them come back into the land. But if you're the Israelites and you've gone through these experiences and you've heard from this prophet Isaiah, you might been a little bit frustrated by this book. Isaiah, I want you to give us some solutions to these problems. How do we ward off the Assyrians? How do we get out of Babylonian exile? And now that we're back in the land, how do we rebuild this nation that has been destroyed? How do we bring the temple back? But Isaiah doesn't really talk about those practical things. Instead, he gives poetry and oracles he gives us illustrations and metaphors of vineyards and mountains and servants and seraphim. Instead of just giving solutions, he gives us the nature of God. It's probably like my dad would talk to me about something I didn't understand when I was young. Why did he take away something that I really cherished? And I didn't really understand it. He understood it in full and he'd give illustrations about maybe a grasshopper or something. Maybe through this analogy or this illustration, I can help you understand what I'm doing, which might be hard for you to understand. In the same way, God sees eternity. He sees all things. And he's talking to us, mortal people. How do I act? How do I work? You can't see the full scope. And so I will give you poetry and imagery to help you understand. And here he gives us some richness of heaven. He gives us a picture of what will be. This is what I want to warn us against, though. Don't take this section of heaven that comes from Isaiah and just pluck it out. Oh, here is all we need to know about heaven. We have to see it in the context of this book. It can't be divorced from God's grand story, his plan of redemption. It fits in this context. In the same way when people think about religion or Christianity, oh yes, how I get to heaven, that's what it really is about. How, how do I live after death? That's what Christianity or religion are about. No, no. Christianity is so much more. Heaven fits in the context of God's grand design. And if you just look at that and pluck it out of his story, you're missing what the meaning of heaven is really about. That's why it's rich when we look at this book of Isaiah. And this is what I believe Isaiah is communicating to us. This is what I think he's saying about heaven. And this is what the point of the sermon is this morning. So if you write anything down, you can write this down. If you want to remember something, this is probably the thing to remember. Heaven is Jerusalem as it should be. It's the kingdom of God fully established. 
And it's where people rejoice in God's reign forever. It's as Jerusalem should be. It's the kingdom fully established. And it's where people worship God and his reign forever. Well, the Israelites, in looking at this chapter 65 and the land, they thought the land and coming back into Israel was heaven. This is the promised land. This is heaven on earth. And when the Israelites came from Egypt and then into um, Israel, they said, we have gained heaven. This is the new Eden. We've arrived. But then if you read through the Bible and this story of redemption, that you realize that it's not really what they wanted to be. There's still problems. There's still sickness. There's still death. There's still idolatry. And in Isaiah, we see that they are getting the land taken away from them. Problems are pointed out by Isaiah, and then they're brought out into exile. And then in the exile, they say, well, we're going to be refined. You know, we're on our four-game losing streak, but we're coming back, you know? We are going to keep on winning if we get back to the land. Now it will be what we want it to be. And now they ride back into the land. Here it is. Now we're in the new Eden. Now this is heaven. This is the way it should be. We are back where we were supposed to be. But then as we read these sections of Isaiah, there are still problems even through their refinement in Babylonian captivity. But Isaiah gives these grand kind of metaphors. A city on a hill, Mount Zion, glimpses of what the new kingdom and heaven should be. It's an already, but not yet. And Isaiah is trying to point out, you know, this new heavens and new earth, it doesn't happen by right governments, or by the temple being built, or a right job. It comes from the Lord establishing something. So what does it look like? If it's not Israel coming back into the land, what is the new heavens and new earth? What is this? Well, let's read together, shall, shall we? Verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. If you read the book of Revelation, you see that John kind of borrows from these things from Isaiah. John says in Revelation 21, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. It's interesting. It seems to be that Isaiah and John, they seem to say that heaven is a physical place, not some ethereal place. Not just angels in the clouds and harps and cherubims and halos. That it's actually physical you know, we will have bodies in heaven. A, a perfect body, but a real body. And this is revolutionary to the ancient world. Other religions at that time, they said, oh, what really matters is where the gods are. That place, that heaven up there is where we really should be. This is just a shadow. But here, it seems like Christianity and the Jewish religion is saying, no, instead, it is a perfect earth. It is how earth should be and how it never was and now it will be this way. There will be hugging in heaven, dancing, feasting. These things will exist. It will be very physical. 
When people talk about heaven, there's lots of books and theology about heaven. But it's important to understand that heaven is not just a state of being. It's actually a place. It's somewhere we will be. It explains it more. It says, And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. You see, heaven is something that will last forever. And the things of this earth will fade away because it just will be nothing compared to what this heaven is. There will be a care for people. There will be joy. There will not be this deep crying and distress. And then he goes on and gives kind of a metaphor in verse 20. He says, you know, in earth you see infants die. You see where if you live to 100, it's not being young. Where if someone you know, decides to smoke cigars and drink whiskey all their life. Even these wicked people can live to 100 years old. But here, that won't happen in this new heavens. There will not be infant mortality. You know, if you're 100 years old, you'll still be young. And the wicked will be found out. It's not saying that there will be death in heaven, as some might say. Because remember, in Isaiah 25, it says death will be swallowed up forever when talking about heaven. Instead, he's trying to give us an illustration. It will not be like what it is here on earth. And again, he goes back to the physicality of heaven. In verse 22, they shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Earlier, we talked about the vineyard and the struggle and pain it was to make a vineyard produce good fruit, how long it took. And then sometimes it wouldn't produce good things. But here in heaven, it will produce good things. And you will see the benefits of it. It will not be taken away from you by other people. You will see your children and descendants grow. Your house will not crumble. These things will last forever. And then he gets an example of what our relationship with God will be like in verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. You see, God in our relationship will be right there. He will know us right there and answer us right there. That relationship will never, no longer be broken. And it will look like the new Eden. How Eden was, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my mountain, says the Lord. Here is the new Eden, how it was in the beginning. Why paint this picture? What is Isaiah doing by ending the book in this way? You know, he gives this picture of heaven after he talks in the beginning of the chapter about what God does to the people. He says, I pursue them in chapter 65. He says, I come after them. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am. 
to a nation that was called by my name. See, God is saying, I came after you. Judah, the people I ran after, I wanted to find you. But you did not respond. See, God is saying, this is what I will give you. This is what I I have for you. I, I am creating this place for you. You think you can create it yourself. You think you can make this yourself. You think, I want this, God. We want our land to look like this. We want our lives to look like this. Guess what? I will give it to you. I can give this to your people. I will create this. But will you long after me? I trying to be hip and cool, right? So Ed Sheeran, right? Is that the famous like guy nowadays, that great British like pop singer guy? So he came out with a new song. It's really catchy, uh, "Castle on a Hill," and he kind of echoes a thought that I think all of humanity has. He says in this song, he's talking about going back to where he grew up in in, in England. He says, "I remember these country lanes." I miss the way you make me feel. He's not talking about a person, but about a a place, a home. I'm on my way home. I'm on my way. The castle on a hill. And he, he in the song is this like, you know, heavy guitar kind of longing. A longing to go back to what his home was. That feeling of being a place where he was known. I don't know if you ever have those feelings, like maybe if you go back home for Christmas or Thanksgiving, you say, if I come home, this will be amazing. This is what I love. I just, that feeling, those smells. The problem is when you go back home, you realize it's not all what you thought it was supposed to be. Oh, wait, mom and dad are not the most idealistic people in the world. You know, those smells are not, you know, the end all be all. And then when you get older and maybe your, your parents have died and there's not that childhood home again, there's still a longing for home. What is home? There's this desire in us, I want to be a place where I'm accepted. I want a place where it feels like it's right. A longing to be somewhere. And this is what the Israelites might have felt in exile. We long to be back to our home in Judah with the temple with our customs, with our traditions. And then they come home and they realize, wait, we still have problems and issues. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. He says, if I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Maybe that longing in you, that longing in us, is that there is a new heavens and new earth to come. There is a place where there will be no more weeping and crying, where we will see the benefits of our creation, where we'll be appreciated for our gifts, where we will see our children grow old, where we will not see that infant mortality or see pain and suffering. There will be home. I imagine two twins talking in the womb. And one of the twins 
says to the other, you know, there's a world outside of this womb. You know, there's air and bright light and loving parents that hold you and you can run and you can play. No, we have to go through this dark canal, but there is something out there. And the other twin responds, that's preposterous, right? Because that's what comes out of an infant's mouth. <laughs> preposterous. How do, you, how do you know that? There's no such thing. as Can you see that? You can't even see it. How do you know there's running and playing? You don't know that. And the other one says, well, there's this, there's this murmuring. There's this light. We're growing. Oh, you Christians, there's no such thing as heaven. You just want to be able to to please yourself about death. You're just afraid of death. So this is what you've made up. No, wait. There are glimpses of true love of loving father relationships. There are glimpses of one that rose from the dead and that lived life after death. There is a world, a new heaven and new earth outside of this. Can't you see it? Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, he's an astrophysicist, uh, kind of very popular figure um, in America today. Very funny guy. I find him very likable. And uh, many of my friends that are agnostic and atheists really give me a lot of Tyson stuff to banter back and forth about Christianity. And uh, one thing he gave recently is an interview with uh, Larry King where he talked about um, life after death. And Tyson is a an atheist, and he'd call himself agnostic, but he does not believe that we have any consciousness and there is nothing after death. And King presses him a little bit on it and says, well, what's the point of living? Where, where is your hope? And doesn't that just scare you? And Tyson responds, and this is his argument of how he lives and his purpose for life and his thing. He says, this is what I want on my tombstone. It's a quote for, from a famous 19th century Um, author, but I want this on my tombstone. Be ashamed to die unless you've accomplished something for humanity. It says, be ashamed to die unless you've accomplished something for humanity. You see, he says, I live for now. I have no life later, so I'm going to live as much as I can now, and if I don't accomplish something, I, I am nothing. I'm going to live and have purpose. This is the way he ethos of life. I wish I could converse with Tyson. Maybe I'll write him a letter or an email or something. But I, I have a question about that way of thinking. You see, if you have a way of thinking that says, um, be ashamed to die unless you've accomplished something for humanity, what standard are you living by? What's the standard that you've accomplished something? You know, maybe your standard of accomplishing something for humanity is much like the 20th century ideologies. Um, If we eliminate a certain people group, we'll we'll be good for humanity. Is that what it means to accomplish something? What's the standard you are talking about? How do we measure that? 
On top of that, what if you're someone that by human standards have not accomplished anything? Does that mean your life has no value and no meaning? That you are nothing but shame? You see, the Christian worldview, the idea that there is a new heavens and new earth, gives hope and meaning to life now. It lets us live by a standard and accomplish things even when the world says that's worthless. Like loving someone that might be difficult to love. Like doing something that people say, why sacrifice your time and your energy to help in a cause like that? You see, Christianity says there's a standard we live by even when the world says we shouldn't because we believe this is how the world should be. This is how the kingdom should be. This is how it will be. And for those of us that are discouraged sometimes, I don't feel like I've accomplished anything in life. My kids haven't turned out the way I wanted them to. My job seems to be at a dead end. I'm not in a relationship that I feel is meaningful and I'm giving anything to it. You see, God says, in the light of eternity, I've given purpose and meaning to things that you might not even see. I have a purpose and a plan that you might not see now, but in the light of eternity, you will see. Well, who will inherit such a place? Who will be in the new heavens in the new earth? For the Israelites, you see what they thought was important and what it meant to inherit the new heavens and earth. Look again, verse 60, chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne, the Lord says, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Here the Lord is talking about the temple. You know, the people said, you know, what is valuable is that we build the temple in Jerusalem. This is where God will dwell. This is his kingdom. Now, God isn't saying there's no purpose in the temple. There is purpose in it. But what he's saying is that that is not the new heavens and the new earth. That is not the ones that will inherit the new heavens and new earth, ones that build the temple, ones that worship there. It's not the cult of Israel or this religion. No, what really matters is this, verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You see, it is submission in obedience, in bowing the knee to me, those that will come into my new heavens and new earth. This is what this book has all been about. All of the book of Isaiah has been about this. Who will listen? Who will hear God and the prophet? See, if you don't follow God now, Isaiah says, why would you follow him in eternity? Lewis, again, in another great book, The Great Divorce, says this, The choice of every lost soul can be expressed in these words. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. 
There is always something they insist on keeping. Even at the price of misery, there is something they prefer to joy. You see it easily enough in a spoiled child that would sooner miss its supper than say he or she was sorry and then be friends. Do you want to be around God for eternity? Do you want to listen to him? Do you want to be in that place forever where you see him in his glory? Or do you want to live your own way? See, God doesn't take proud people. He doesn't take people that says, I will create my own heaven. He takes people that says, God, I need your kingdom. I need you. He needs people that bow the knee. I encourage you. uh, I love the book, The Great Divorce. I kind of read it every year because I get new things from it every time. It's an allegory um, about uh, the intermediary place between heaven and hell written by C.S. Lewis and conversations when people that uh, are in hell and people that are in heaven, conversations between the two. And and this one guy is traveling between both worlds. And he's talking to another guy who's come from heaven to this immediate place, and they overhear um, this woman that is grumbling, just constantly just grumbling to herself. And he's asking about this. And the man says, the question is whether she is a grumbler or only a grumble. The question is whether she is a grumbler or only a grumble. And the guy is wondering, what is he talking about? But how can there be a grumble without a grumbler? And he responds to this woman who is coming from the dark place, from separation from God. He says, see, it begins with a grumbling mood. And yourself is still distinct from it, perhaps criticizing it. And yourself in a dark hour may will that mood, will that mood embrace it that grumbling. But you can repent and come out of it again. But there may come a day when you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize to the mood, nor even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. You see, those who do not submit to God and humble themselves to him will be drift off to the sea, to their sin and to their vices until they become nothing themselves anymore. And they just become that sin and that thing that takes them away. You know, the pastor talks about heaven and hell. I'll just describe it like this. Hell is separation from God. I don't know what that's going to be like. I don't know what that's going to be, but I don't want to be there. And heaven is going to be unity with him. I don't know clearly what it's going to look like. I can read some things in Revelation and Isaiah, but all I know is I'd rather be there. The question is, will I submit to him or to myself? Hell is simply eternal souls who don't want God getting in their way. And heaven is eternal souls who long for God in all their life. God himself, infinite, joyful, without measure.
See, heaven is a place and it is a state where you inherit such a place with such a state. You know, this is what we see here. In 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus called, or Paul called Jesus the first fruits of the dead. The first fruits of the dead. See, Jesus is the first glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth. He is the glimpse of the conquering of death. He is the glimpse of resurrection. See, we might be a grumbler. Maybe you are. I have been this week a grumbler. We might be one that wants our own way. But the way that we prepare ourselves for the new heavens and new earth is humbling ourselves to the, the first glimpse of the new heavens and new earth. The first fruits, Jesus Christ. And when we associate with him, then we associate with the new heavens and new earth. So I encourage you, if you say, I, I bow the knee to him. I am humble. I have a contrite spirit. Then stand and come before him. Receive the elements. You might not be there. You might say, I don't know about this Christianity thing. If, if that's where you are, I encourage you. You can talk to me or any of the elders that are going to be up here. I love to have these conversations. Maybe you have that, that feeling like Neil deGrasse Tyson. If you do, that's okay. We can dialogue about that. I'd love to. I hope this is a safe place where we can talk about those things. But if you are one that says, I need Christ, then come forward. This isn't an Emmaus Road table. It's not a Presbyterian table. It's a table for those that say, I cling to Jesus.